Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You'd never guess from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city. It's called the, the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city... I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully, as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about Mary Queen of Scots' escape from Loch Leven Castle and her decision to flee to England. It was the final fateful decision of her reign. Now, Europe and France was the obvious choice for Mary to flee to. She had support allies in the States, but for some mad reason, she thought she'd be better served by isolated England. It's very, very difficult to put in any kind of 21st century context. I know, right? Now, by the time of Mary's, inverted commas, escape to England in May 1568, she had been sent to France as a refugee after a war had been started over who she should marry as an infant. She became the most powerful woman in Europe. She returned to Scotland, which had essentially overnight changed its religious and political structure. She was berated by angry Protestants. Her mother and her father were both dead. She had two dead husbands, one of whom was murdered as part of an elaborate, spectacular plot involving strangling gunpowder and an almighty explosion. She put down a rebellion that was started by her brother. She witnessed the horrific murder of her secretary by rebels who broke into her own bedroom. She was imprisoned and escaped, won back her kingdom, married the man responsible for killing her second husband, was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, imprisoned again, miscarried twins, abdicated her throne, escaped again, almost won her kingdom back, then fled to what she thought was the safety of her sister queen a caring relative, her cousin Elizabeth I, who instead of looking after her would lock her up and then have her murdered 18 years later. It was like every EastEnders Christmas special rolled into one. Mary was the most unfortunate woman in Britain, like a 26-year-old Gail Platt. Now listen folks, if this is the first time that you've listened to the, the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, this is the sort of thing that you should expect, alright? I'm not going to lie to you, this is Scottish history with lots of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. Um, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, I always suggest that folk go back to the first episode. Uh, all the episodes are chronological, each one gives a bit of background to the one that follows it. They're all named as well, so if you want, you can jump in at like William Wallace or Robert the Bruce. Basically, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm suggesting, right? Anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast. It's all about Mary Queen of Scots, imprisonment in Loch Leven Castle, her escape, her attempts to win back her kingdom and her uh, her doomed decision to flee into the safety of the into the arms of Elizabeth the first. I do hope that you enjoy it. Have fun out there, and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy. After Darnley's death, Mary offered a two thousand pound reward for any information that would lead to her capturing the culprit. Well, I mean, at least she did until it turned out it had been Rebecca Vardy all along. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, there were plenty who wanted Darnley dead. He was a very killable character, universally loathed like Joffrey or Matt Hancock. Most of Scotland's most powerful nobles and Mary's top advisers had committed to having Darnley murdered by signing the Craigmiller bond in November 1566. Rumours over who was responsible for Darnley's murder began to circulate in the streets of Edinburgh and the courts of Europe. Prime suspect was James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell, the, the Earl of Bothwell, the man who had come to Mary's defence after the murder of David Rizzio. Placards of Bothwell and Mary began to circulate in Edinburgh with the Queen depicted as a whore. Which would make an interesting new design for the back of the £20 note, that one, wouldn't it? Now, Bothwell, he responded to these accusations in his typical bullish style, challenging anyone who accused him to single combat, which I don't think is the best way to prove your innocence. You know, challenging folk to a square go. That would be like Oscar Pistorius challenging his accusers to a running race, you know? <laughs> me, me lady, anyone who thinks that I did this, I'll challenge them to a running race. Because I did not kill Real that night, me, me, me lady. Me, 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 me lady. He'd just break down crying as soon as the starter's pistol went off, wouldn't he? Now, Mary, she had few advisors that she could actually rely on. Most were compromised. Maitland, Bothwell, Murray, Argyle, Martin, they were all suspected of having signed the Craig Miller bond. And Murray, he had conveniently distanced himself from Edinburgh at the time of the murder. At the end of an official 40 days of mourning, Mary decided to act. She allowed Darnley's father, Matthew Stewart, Earl of Lennox, to accuse Bothwell in front of the Scottish Parliament. The trial of Bothwell on the 12th of April 1567 was a travesty. Bothwell was a privy councillor and as such he was one of those involved in the organisation of his own trial. He just set up a table out the back in the garden and rambled some shite about how he had to drive to check if he was blind or not before getting off scot-free. Lennox, he was permitted by law to take six men to court with him. He took 3,000. It's like Scotland at the Euros, basically. Bothwell, he had packed the city with 4,000 of his own border's adherents and he marched to Linlithgow to challenge Lennox. Lennox was forced to turn back, Linlithgow being about as close to Edinburgh as folk from the west of Scotland are willing to get. With no accuser in court, the Parliament, after listening to several hours of rigged evidence, had little option but to acquit Bothwell. Bothwell was found not guilty of being art and part of the cruel, odious, treasonable and abominable slaughter of the king. He may have been proven innocent, but few believed him. But with few other reliable or strong advisers, Bothwell remained one of Mary's closest allies and advisers. Her continued association with Bothwell saw her popularity and support from her subjects begin to dissipate. But Bothwell, he'd proven himself as strong and loyal to both Mary and Mary's mother, Marie de Guise. But Mary would soon realise that Bothwell, he had designs and a power grab for himself. On the evening of the 19th of April 1567, Bothwell invited a party of 29 lords to Ainsley's Tavern on the Canongate. It was an extraordinary group of powerful earls, bishops and lords, all of whom signed a bond known as the Ainsley Bond, promising to favour a marriage between Bothwell and Mary. They signed, despite the fact that Bothwell was the man who almost certainly had murdered Darnley, Mary was recently widowed and Bothwell was already married. He was married to Lady Jean Gordon, the sister of the Earl of Huntley, who had himself signed the bond. The Earl of Huntley signed a bond supporting a marriage between his sister's husband and another man. I bet the brother of Matt Hancock's wife has tried to do the exact same thing. 
But listen, it's easily done. You know what it's like? You go for a few pints with the boys. Next thing you know, you're signing a bond that will promote the career of a sexual deviant, one of the most diabolical characters in Scottish history. It is how I imagine contracts at the BBC were dealt with in the 1970s. Armed with the ammunition he needed, Bothwell went to see Mary to make a formal marriage proposal. Mary turned him down and she travelled to Stirling Castle to spend time with her 10-month-old son. Little did she know it would be the last time she would see her son. On Wednesday the 21st of April 1567, Mary started back to Edinburgh from Stirling with only a handful of close advisors, including William Maitland and the Earl of Huntley. At Almond Bridge, just outside of Edinburgh, she was stopped by Bothwell and a force of 800 men, the largest crowd ever recorded at Almondville. Bothwell told Mary he was taking her to Dunbar for her inverted commas safety. Mary didn't resist. Perhaps she was resigned to her fate with Bothwell or perhaps she genuinely believed there was trouble awaiting her in Edinburgh. Either way, she went willingly to Dunbar, a decision that led to accusations of Mary being involved in her own, inverted commas, staged abduction. Like it was an episode of Celebrity SAS Who Dares Win. Mary was being kidnapped alongside some pleb from The Only Way Is Wet Essex. Now, while at Dunbar, Bothwell pressed home his marriage proposal and tried to convince Mary to agree to marry him. And it was at Dunbar in April 1567 that he is alleged to have raped Mary. Now, Mary's own accounts say she was raped by Bothwell. There's no reason to believe she wasn't. But regardless of whether he did or he didn't, the sexual encounter, it compromised Mary's honour and political credibility. After the encounter with Bothwell, Mary felt she had little option but to consent to marry him. Mary stayed at Dunbar for two weeks while Bothwell's wife, Lady Jean Gordon, started proceedings for a Protestant divorce. Lady Jean Gordon was a powerful and capable woman. She was the daughter of the Catholic Earl of Huntley, but married Bothwell in a Protestant ceremony just a year earlier, weeks before the murder of David Rizzio. The marriage had the blessing of Mary, but now Jean Gordon started divorce proceedings against Bothwell, alleging his adultery with one of her servants, which, given his Boris-like reputation, was entirely plausible. She was a strong woman who wasn't going to have the pish taken out of her just because her husband was determined to marry someone else. Very much the, the princess die of her day. The divorce was granted on the 3rd of May, just in time for Mary and Bothwell's return to Edinburgh on the 6th of May. Before they could be married, Mary had to sign a document issued by the Lord Justice saying she had not been ravished or kept captive by Bothwell at Dunbar. Bothwell was made Duke of Orkney and Lord of Shetland. Then, on the 14th of May, with Maitland and Huntley present, Mary signed a marriage contract and they were married the next day in a Protestant ceremony at Holyrood, which, I mean, even by third wedding standards, it was a pretty miserable affair. There was no public rejoicing, no celebrations, no important guests. It was a, a COVID wedding 450 years before COVID weddings were even a thing. Bothwell had remarried just 12 days after his divorce, a quicker turnaround than Boris Johnson. But Mary, she was clearly ill, exhausted by the stresses of the previous months. Her vivaciousness, her self-confidence were gone. She was far from her radiant self. She was in a state of shock, drained and distraught. The fact that such a committed Catholic queen would agree to marry in a Protestant ceremony says everything about Mary's passiveness at that point. Everyone, including Mary, 
knew the marriage was doomed from the off. Almost immediately, public revulsion at the marriage turned to riots and rebellion. Bothwell and Mary they were chased out of Edinburgh like Boris Johnson visiting Butte House. First they had to retreat to the refuge of Borthwick Castle, south of Edinburgh, and then on to the greater safety of Dunbar. So, why would an intelligent, politically aware young woman like Mary jeopardise everything by marrying the man who was almost certainly responsible for killing her husband? It might seem like a crazy decision, but Mary was dealing with the fact that most of her closest nobles had planned, committed, or condoned the attack on Darnley. The nobility had far more power in relation to the crown than other European kingdoms. Mary needed noble support, and there were very few reliable options. The Scottish nobility had brazenly committed murder in front of the Queen. Her own brother had launched a rebellion against her, and the most powerful men in the country had conspired to kill the king and possibly even her. There was nothing like the respect for the monarchy there was in England or France. Elizabeth I or Catherine de' Medici could never dream of facing such a volatile domestic situation as Mary. Mary lived with a constant and very real threat that she might be abducted and imprisoned by one of the Scottish nobility at any moment. Mary didn't have loyal advisers such as William Cecil in England who could protect her. Bothwell was one of the few who had shown consistent loyalty and strength. He had emerged as one of the most powerful noblemen in the country and in the chaotic wake of Darnley's death, perhaps Mary thought that he could be the man who offered stable governance. She wasn't to know that Bothwell's own secret agenda was to be on the throne next to her. The nobles who had signed the Ainsley Bond were having second thoughts. On the 1st of May 1567, another group of lords, including William Maitland and many who had signed the Ainsley Bond, signed another bond at Stirling Castle. They realised how bad the first bond was, so they reversed their decision. At least the violent, power-hungry maniacs of the 16th century could admit when they had signed up to a bad deal. You'd never get that these days, would you? The bond was signed by the Confederacy of Protestant Lords and was headed up by the Earl of Morton, one of those who had signed the Ainsley Bond just weeks earlier. The Confederate Lords pledged to rescue the Queen from her dangerous husband by ensuring she'd never get in a Range Rover with him. They gathered an army and took to the field to confront Bothwell. Mary and Bothwell emerged from Dunbar Castle with a showdown force of around 1,000 men and the two sides faced off against each other at Carberry just outside of Musselburgh on the 15th of June 1567. Mary and Bothwell's force set up on the top of Carberry Hill where they viewed the larger Confederate force below them but no battle would ensue at Carberry Hill. All day intermediates went between the two sides passing information to and fro. Bothwell offered to settle the issue in single combat with the notoriously formidable Lord Lindsay of the Byers, the man who had pointed a pistol at Mary's pregnant belly during the murder of David Rizzio. Mary refused to allow Bothwell to enter into combat, and as the day wore on and he expected reinforcements from the Hamiltons in the west and from Huntley in the north never arrived, Mary realised that they, they couldn't give fight. Mary offered to surrender herself willingly to the Confederate lords if Bothwell was offered safe passage. Mary promised Bothwell she would set up a parliamentary commission that would no doubt exonerate him of Darnley's murder completely. So Bothwell reluctantly left while Mary crossed the battlefield and surrendered herself to the Confederates. Bothwell's safe passage, though, didn't amount to much. Almost immediately the lords were hot on his heels. Bothwell travelled the kingdom trying unsuccessfully to raise an army. He made his way to Orkney where he tried to raise forces in his new dukedom of Orkney and Shetland. He was getting desperate, you know, trying to enlist men dressed as Vikings riding into battle on Shetland ponies. 
Bothwell's pursuers were still hot on his heels and he barely escaped, only just making it onto a ship to Norway to escape his captors. Once in Norway, Bothwell's past sexual exploits caught up with him and he wasn't allowed to present at the Oscar ceremony that year. He had caused scandal in the Danish courts years earlier by marrying the, the daughter of a powerful Danish family, Anna Thronsden. The marriage was deemed illegitimate, and Darnley then married Lady Jean Gordon shortly after, but Anna raised a complaint against Bothwell, who was accused of stealing the marriage dowry. Anna Thronsden remained the most pissed-off wife in Scandinavia until Tiger Woods' missus. When he arrived back in Norway, Bothwell was arrested, thrown in a dungeon and tethered. For the next 11 years, Bothwell was kept in horrendous conditions without trial, like an American with an unpaid parking ticket. He went insane and died in 1578. Bothwell's mummified body was displayed in a glass-lidded casket and drags him about 50 miles west of Copenhagen before it started to disintegrate and was given a proper burial in 1976. It took his body 400 years to decompose because it was kept in a farm foods placky bag. A plastic bag so indestructible, the only way to dispose of it responsibly would be to chuck it into the fires of Mount Doom. It was a pretty unfortunate end for Bothwell, but you know, fate catches up with sexual deviants, liars and adulterers. Unless of course you're Boris Johnson, in which case you'll become Prime Minister, you know. Or Donald Trump, who was the President of the United States. Or Prince Andrew, who seems to have got off scot-free with having sex with underage human traffic girls. Basically, I suppose what I'm saying is, fate will catch up with, uh, with sexual deviants unless they're white male and from extreme privilege. If Mary thought her status as leader of Scotland would mean she would be received honourably by the confederate lord she was in for a shock as she crossed the battlefield the rebel soldiers jeered and shouted at her calling her wee jimmy cranky and how you wee nippy and other such shite patter rebel shine of the queen who'd have thought it eh? mary was separated from her servants and taken to edinburgh but not to holyrood as she may have expected but instead to a house in the high street that was owned by the lord provost as she entered the city crowds gathered shouting kill the whore drown her lock her up and trump that bitch Mary could be seen at the window of the provost's house, dishevelled and screaming. She couldn't believe she had paid so much for a shitey Airbnb in the Royal Mile. She was taken to Holyrood for a quick meal, but before she could finish, Mary was told to prepare to leave. Now, she hoped she was being taken to Stirling Castle, where she desperately wanted to see her son. This was back in the days when the Queen's son wasn't a sexual deviant who would delay family holidays so he could visit a billionaire's private island and have sex with human trafficked underage girls. You know, James was only nine months old. Instead, Mary wasn't taken to Stirling, but to Loch Leven Castle in the first of her long years of imprisonment. Loch Leven Castle was built on an island in, well, Loch Leven, funnily enough. And Mary knew the castle well. She was related to the, Douglas of, the Douglases of Loch Leven, who kept the castle, and she had stayed there on several occasions. In April 1563, Mary had summoned John Knox to an audience with her at Loch Leven. The keeper of the castle was one Sir William Douglas. Now, Sir William Douglas was the cousin of James Douglas, the Earl of Morton, and Morton was the leader of the Confederate Lords at Carberry Hill. He was involved in the conspiracy to kill Darnley. He was one of the signatories of the Craig Miller bond, as well as the Ainsley and Confederate bonds. He just loved signing bonds. He signed bonds like they were passing out his gyro. And William Douglas, he was the half-brother of Mary's half-brother, the Earl of Murray. So former friends were now unfriendly jailers. Mary was stuck in her wee island, and after Brexit, I think we all know how she feels. Mary and her attendants were confined to two rooms and made to share with Lady Douglas to ensure she was watched continuously. They also made her agree to Facebook's cookies policy. 
Within, her month, uh, within a month of her arrival at Loch Leven, Mary had a miscarriage. She gave birth to two stillborn twins, presumably fathered by Bothwell. The fact that Mary was pregnant goes some way to explaining her behaviour and decisions in the run-up to Carberry Hill. If Mary knew she was pregnant, she would want to ensure the legitimacy of her children by marrying Bothwell. On the 24th of July, Mary was visited by Lord Lindsay the Buyer and Lord Ruthven, who presented her with deeds of abdication. The Confederate lords had removed Mary from the throne and replaced her with her infant son James. James Stuart, Earl of Murray, her half-brother, was made regent, with Morton acting as his stand-in until his return from abroad. Lindsay and Ruthven made Mary's choices very clear to her, either abdicate the throne or die. The next day, an exhausted and ill Mary signed the deeds without even looking at them, like a property developer on homes under the hammer. Exhausted, ill, and resigned to giving all her power away to an inferior male ruler. She was like, uh, she was like Theresa May, I suppose. Five days later, on the 29th of July, 1567, the 13-month-old James was crowned King of Scots in a Protestant ceremony in Stirling. Not at the castle, where James had been baptised in a Catholic ceremony, but in the nearby Church of the Holy Rood. Few of the nobility were present. The coronation oath that was taken on the king's behalf by Morton and the crown, too heavy for his wee head, it was held above him, which I'm told is what the queen does to Prince Charles. She hovers it above his head and sings, can't touch this. John Knox, he preached a, a chilling sermon justifying regicide. You can always rely on John Knox to make a, a cheery occasion miserable. Do you know what I mean? He's like, he's like mid-year writing a Christmas song. Well, tonight we crown the king, loud it's kill the queen. The English ambassador, Thomas Randolph, he waited outside the church as Queen Elizabeth, she didn't want anything to, to do with this act. Elizabeth, she didn't want to be associated, so she just had someone stand outside as a kind of pointless protest. She must have been a Celtic fan. At Lochleven Castle, where Mary was imprisoned, William Douglas, he fired the cannons in celebration of the coronation of the new king. This was just two years since Mary had been at the height of her reign, celebrating her marriage to Darnley. The Confederate lords were now in government, and they refused Mary's appeals to appear before Parliament. In December 1567, an Act of Parliament declared that Bothwell was the chief executioner of the horrible murder of Darnley and that Mary was his accomplice in as much as it was clearly evident by both her letters and by her active marriage to Bothwell that she was privy, act and part of the actual device and deed of the forenamed murder of the king, her lawful husband. It's amazing really, like the men who were actually responsible for Darnley's murder were accusing Mary of killing him. I suppose it's like how the Tories blame immigrants and poor people. But Mary still had her sympathisers and springing the Queen from her prison on Loch Leven was uppermost in their minds. On the island itself there was George Douglas who was the younger brother of the castle's keeper Sir William Douglas and there was Willie Douglas or Pretty Geordie. Which sounds like Liam Gallagher's North East clothing line, doesn't it? Pretty Geordie. Pretty Geordie, he was thought to be the illegitimate son of uh, of William Douglas, the castle's keeper. But they didn't know. They, they pretended he was an orphan. Was he an orphan? Was he an illegitimate son? Was he a legitimate son? Pretty Geordie, he was, uh, he was basically the Prince Harry of the Douglas family, you know? And despite being George Douglas's nephew... Willie Douglas, Pretty Geordie, and George Douglas, they were of similar age and both had become infatuated with their royal prisoner. They were determined to help Mary escape. The first attempt came in March 1568 when George tried to row Mary to safety disguised as a washerwoman. 
But she was discovered when the boatman noticed her, her delicate, pale, slender fingers and rowed her back to the castle. It was her fingers that gave her away, like sneaking E.T. or Donald Trump off of the island. After the failed escape, uh, George Douglas, he was banished from the island and Mary was kept in a more secure turret room, accessible only through a guarded quadrangle. A more ambitious escape attempt came on the 2nd of May 1568 during May Day celebrations at the castle. During the celebrations, Pretty Geordie, Willie Douglas, he cast himself as the Abbot of Unreason, the organiser of the festivities. And when Mary's jailers were suitably drunk and distracted, she was snuck out of a side door and rode across the loch where the banished George Douglas and Lord Seton, the father of Mary Seton, one of Mary's four Marys, were waiting for her. Mary, she snuck out of her bedroom to go and meet her pal's dad. It was like something out of American beauty. And from Loch Leven, Mary crossed the fourth at Queensferry and travelled to Lord Seton's stronghold of Nidri Castle. News travelled quickly of the Queen's escape. Her imprisonment had been unpopular even among the Protestant lords and most were delighted to hear of Mary's escape. Like Celtic, not all of Mary's supporters were Catholics, some were just glory hunters. The people of West Lothian, they came out of their houses to cheer Mary as she rode past, not necessarily because they loved their queen, they just respect anyone who can escape from prison in that particular part of the world. The next day, Mary, Seton and Douglas rode to Hamilton where she met with Lord Claude Hamilton, the younger son of the Duke of Chatelereau. And at Hamilton, Mary made a proclamation revoking the abdication she had signed under duress at Loch Leven and condemned the detestable tyrants and traitors who had deposed her. Mary now had one of two choices to make, either go to Edinburgh and advance her cause through constitutional means in Parliament, or head to Dumbarton in the West where support for Mary was at its strongest. Raise an army, put the Confederate rebels down, Parliament or battle. It was a fateful choice and once again Mary, she, she chose the wrong option. Mary decided to head west and make for the security of Dumbarton Castle. And on the 8th of May 1568, a group of nine earls, bishops, lairds and hundreds of others gathered at Hamilton where they signed a bond declaring for Mary. Mary could now muster an army larger than the Confederates, but she had to make it to Dumbarton. From Dumbarton... Mary's position was near impregnable. She could receive reinforcements from the north and the west and win the country back by degrees. The Confederates' only hope now was to stop her from making it there. Mary was going to take back control of the kingdom. So we should already know that it ends in disaster. I don't really blame Mary for not choosing to go down the constitutional route. We already know that doesn't work in Scotland. I mean, democracy is only allowed here once in a generation. But when news of Mary's escape from Loch Leven reached Murray, he was in Glasgow, and he immediately began to muster troops to block her route to Dumbarton. Mary was able to muster an army of around 6,000 at Hamilton, and she was marching west along the south bank of the River Clyde. To avoid marshland, Mary's army's only passable route to Dumbarton was south of Glasgow through the village of Langside, now long since swallowed up into the suburbs of the city. Langside is in the Queen's Park, Mount Florida part of uh, south Glasgow, and it was at Langside where Murray would make his stand. Murray had inferior numbers, but more experienced troops. And we know that just because you have more supporters, that doesn't mean you're actually any good. I mean, just look at Newcastle United, for Christ's sake. Mary's army it was commanded by Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange, an experienced military commander, an enthusiastic reformer, and a violent and unpredictable man, which for anyone who's ever been to Kirkcaldy should come as a surprise to no one. 
Kirkcaldy had led the Fife Lairds who infiltrated St Andrew's Castle and assassinated Cardinal David Beaton in 1548. He fought for the Lords of the Congregation against Marie de Guise's French troops and was responsible for the pursuit of Bothwell after Carberry Hill. Mary, on the other hand, she appointed Archibald Campbell, the Earl of Argyll, as Lieutenant of the Kingdom, despite having no military qualifications whatsoever. Putting someone in charge of the military, despite having absolutely no experience or qualifications, might seem crazy, but I mean, the Americans do it every four years. On the 13th of May, 1568, the Queen's men attempted to pass through Langside. Kirkcaldy concentrated muskets behind thick hedgerows, a tradition that remains in Glasgow to this day. Give any bush in the city a good shake and a weapon is likely to drop out. And from behind these bushes they could fire into the narrow pass that Argyle's forces had to pass through. Kirkcaldy's men, they were backed up by cannon and they had cavalry support. Mary, she'd wanted to lead her army but was persuaded to watch from the viewpoint of Mount Florida and she watched as her forces broke and fled, pursued by Kirkcaldy's cavalry reserve. Mary, she was forced to watch a a miserable, demoralising defeat in the south of Glasgow and this was 350 years before Hamden Park was even built there. The gamble had not paid off, the Battle of Langside was lost and now there was no chance of Mary making it to Dumbarton safely. Accompanied by Lord Claude Hamilton and a handful of retainers, Mary headed south to the Solway Firth. On the morning of the 15th of May 1568, they reached Terregal's Castle on the outskirts of Dumfries. Here, Mary had another important decision to make, where to go next. And once again, she made the wrong choice. Her companions urged her to sail to France, where she had estates, powerful allies, and where she could launch a counterattack. But Mary was adamant that she should go to England, where she thought she would be well-received by her sister, Queen Elizabeth. Mary had made enough poor decisions by this point that she could be part of the Tory COVID response team. Europe was the obvious choice here, but for some unbeknownst reason, Mary felt a need to cling on to isolated England. Impossible to put into any kind of context in 21st century Scotland. I know, right? She rode in disguise to Dundrennan Abbey in Galloway, and from there, uh, the small party, they walked to the tiny port at the mouth of the Abbey Burn where they boarded a small fishing boat. A handful of loyal supporters, including Lord Claude Hamilton and the lovestruck George Douglas, accompanied Mary on the short journey across the Solway Firth, and still, Mary's companions begged her to change her mind and to make for France instead. They warned that Pretty Patel drowned people who were trying to make it to England on boats. But still, Mary was adamant, and on the 16th of May 1568, she stepped onto English soil. She would never set foot in Scotland ever again. Mary, she expected to be welcomed by England's ruler, but instead found herself being disrespected and locked up. It was like it was like Theresa May with the Windrush generation. Mary was taken to Carlisle Castle while Elizabeth pondered what to do with her unexpected guest. Having the heir presumptive to the English throne, a Catholic claimant nonetheless, on English soil was an embarrassment for England. But Mary's imprisonment in England also offered an opportunity. Mary, she could be used as a bargaining chip with the Confederate lords and Scotland would become a a docile Protestant neighbour heavily dependent on English support. A docile neighbour to the north that would learn to know its place and accept decisions from a government it didn't vote for. The question was when or if Mary should be allowed to return to Scotland. She couldn't be allowed to go to France where she could seek out armed support for an invasion. And if Mary were released back into Scotland, how could they be guaranteed she wouldn't go to France and gather support? 
Elizabeth remained purposely politically inactive in a flurry of diplomatic negotiations. Elizabeth's tactic was to do fuck all and just hope that things kind of happened the way that she wanted them to. Pretty much Nicola Sturgeon's approach to independence. All the while, Mary was being moved further and further from the Scottish border, first to the greater security of Bolton Castle in Yorkshire, then eventually on to Tutbury Castle in Shropshire. She was now very much a captor and not a guest. Since her escape from Loch Leven, Mary had managed only 14 days of freedom. I bet she wishes she went to France now, you know. She could have just spent that time at Disneyland Paris. Now she was in England. She would remain in English captivity for the next 18 years until her execution at Fotheringhay Castle on the 8th of February, 1587. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so, so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you're enjoying the series. Uh, what I try to do on this podcast is every week I try to raise enough money through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of a bottle of whiskey that matches what we've been talking about on the podcast here today. Um, and so you can do that. Basically, if, you, if you've listened to this podcast and you think, do you know what, if I met Daniel in real life, I'd buy him a pint, I'd buy him a cup of coffee. Then go on to buymeacoffee.com slash Scotland. And basically just give me the price of a cup of coffee. And all that money goes towards raising enough money to send someone deserving a bottle of whiskey. And you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey by giving me a follow on social media. I'm on social media at Montebank Scotland on Twitter and on Instagram. Send me a DM on there. Leave me uh, some money on buy me a coffee and you can leave a wee comment. You can send me an email. And basically I choose someone at random. It can be like a, an NHS staff worker, a frontline worker. It can just be someone who deserves a break, a thoroughly sound person that you'd like to send a bottle of whiskey to. You can uh, nominate someone and I basically pick someone at random. Um, if you've listened to a few episodes of the Montebank History of Scotland podcast and you'd like to become a regular contributor, you can give me the, the equivalent of a cup of coffee every single month by becoming a, a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Scotland. And just give me basically like three quid every month. It's all massively appreciated. And like I say, it goes towards buying deserving people bottles of whiskeys. Now, on today's podcast, I'm going to to match the podcast with a, a blended whiskey in Scotland, right? Now, here's the thing. I, I Normally, I only ever match podcasts with malt whiskeys from Scotland. I've, I've matched a podcast with a blend one time before, and it was Black Bottle, episode 18, with King James III. And that's because James was such a terrible king, I didn't really want to, like, tarnish any amazing malts with his name. And also because Black Bottle is hands down the best and uh, and the the best value for money and the tastiest blend in Scotland, in my opinion. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break my own rule, and I'm going to match today's podcast with another blended whiskey. Because there is a Mary Queen of Scots whiskey. I've never ever had it. I don't know anything about it. But uh, I will send someone a bottle of that if I can raise enough money. It's a, it's a blend that's comprised of 12 malt whiskies, all aged 12 years old, to reflect the 12 years that Mary spent in Scotland as an infant and then as, a, as an adult ruling on a return from France. So if you'd like to nominate someone to receive... A bottle of the Mary Queen of Scots blend. Like I say, I've not had it before, but uh, I can't tell you much about it, but I'm sure it's lovely. Then you can do that. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter or, or send me a wee email. Um, please do take a moment to like the podcast, to rate the podcast, tell a pal, tell a friend, especially if you're listening from a, in a different country, if you're in America or Australia or something like that. Please, uh, please let someone else know. 
Uh, give it a wee rate, give it a review, that all helps massively. And give me a wee follow on Instagram and on Twitter, at Montebank Scotland. I don't think of anything else I need to ask you. Uh, thank you so, so much for listening, and I'll, I'll see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.